You're listening to Semper Bellum, a podcast about war. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Tristan. I'm joined by my wife and producer, Nikki. In this episode, we're diving into archery and the origin of warfare itself. We'll reference a lot of different battles throughout history, with a little added emphasis on the war in Iraq, some ancient battles in Valencia, and a brief mention of the war in Ukraine. If you point your browser to loveisafetish.com slash war, you'll find our episode two immersion guide. This document has links to our sources and a plethora of resources to enhance your listening experience. And now a content warning. War is the epitome of horror. This podcast will engage in thoughtful discussions of topics related to war to include descriptions of violence and evil. We highly recommend you avoid or cease listening if such discourse makes you uncomfortable. Remember, our intent isn't to glorify or celebrate war, but to understand it. I left the war in Iraq to join the war on drugs. One month, I'm standing in the desert watching some Iraqi children play soccer with a handful of Navy SEALs. And the next, I'm in Curacao drinking a beer on the pier. And when the port call ended, we raised anchor and set off into the beautiful blue waters of the Caribbean Sea. Up to this point in my career, I'd only ever served in the Persian Gulf and only aboard carriers. Now I was aboard a frigate, and our sole purpose was to assist the Coast Guard in its law enforcement duties. Our daily routine involved patrolling the ocean until the eye in the sky pointed us toward a target. In my experience, there were only two types of vessels that ran dark and quiet in the waters we patrolled. Speedboats smuggling drugs and overfull migrant boats carrying desperate refugees to the U.S. Either way, when we found one, the procedure was the exact same. You board the vessel, you confiscate any drugs or weapons you find, and you bring everyone on to our ship as, let's say, guests. It didn't matter whether you were a drug smuggler or a child immigrant. You got rice to eat and a bucket to crap in. Sailors, armed with shotguns, watched you do both. It was business as usual for the first few months. Then I got my first taste of what we'll call unconventional battlefield tactics. We were chasing a go-fast. Uh, that's jargon for a speedboat suspected of smuggling drugs. And its crew was stupidly trying to escape. It's worth mentioning, this was a law enforcement endeavor. The U.S. Navy was there to support the Coast Guard. That means we, uh, that means we weren't authorized to fire unless fired upon. The Coast Guard, on the other hand, they had different regs. Uh, once they'd given sufficient warning, they could use whatever force was necessary to conduct their counter-narcotics operations. The problem with, you know, whatever force is necessary is that you have to get creative because cocaine burns. Those little go-fast, they're just floating tanks of fuel. Uh, they've got motors strapped to the back and a hold for the cocaine, but if you shoot at them or fire on them in any way, they explode. And our mission, to be very clear, was not to make the waters safe or to protect the borders. Our mission was to get our cocaine back. Let's switch gears. Uh, let's talk about archery. That's the topic for this episode of Semper Bellum. Some 60 or 70,000 years ago, groups of people needed to make other groups of people do what they wanted to do. Up until then, smacking them in the face with clubs or stabbing them with spears had gotten the job done. But at some point in history, we can be certain that a few little people who weren't very strong took up bows and they climbed up in some trees or sat on a ridge and they picked off a bunch of bigger, faster, stronger enemies 
by using the first example of tactical combat. Now, you can be sure that any of those big warriors who managed to survive the onslaught, they ran away and they started making bows and arrows immediately. The reason we can be so sure is that we know that war is not about killing the enemy. We do not engage in war to find out who the superior warriors are. We engage in war because one group wants something from another group, and they are too cowardly to achieve it through any means other than violence. The first recorded depiction of organized combat resembling tactical warfare, that is, the first image of war, comes from a prehistoric cave painting in Valencia. It depicts four archers encircling a group of three. This art, which you can see in the immersion guide on our website, dates back to the Mesolithic era from about 10,000 to 8,000 BCE. Now this image is representative of the genesis of warfare itself. Whether it's the first time that humans clashed in actual war, we will never know. But as far as the scale and the scope go, it's certainly close. So what does that mean, the scale and the scope? Uh, humans have always murdered each other for personal gain and out of malice. Barbarianism has existed since we descended from the trees. But warfare is a different kind of violence. It is, by definition, a sanctioned form of murder. It requires a state. That is to say, it requires both tribes and tribal zeal. Though war is conflict, it is not by any means competition. Like I said, war is not about facing the enemy and testing their mettle. It's about, as Clausewitz put it, continuing politics by other means. War is the use of mustard gas, napalm, and white phosphorus to visit unimaginable horror on the enemy population, soldier, and civilian alike. It's carpet bombing the enemies, universities, hospitals, schools, churches, orphanages, just to compel them to peace. It's using atomic weapons to kill hundreds of thousands of non-combatants in order to achieve strategic goals. It is the mass rape and murder of women and children just to break the enemy's spirit. War has no winners. But when you're chasing a go-fast suspected of smuggling cocaine, your number one priority is to secure the drugs. Sometimes you get lucky. The crew of the GoFast just turns off the motors, they throw their hands in the air, and they wait to be boarded. But most of the time, you're not quite that lucky. Uh, and when you're not, you have three choices. You can uh, blow up the GoFast, you can wait for it to run out of fuel, or you can do what we did, and that's... <laughs> it's a maneuver called swamping. So the, the, the helicopter pilot, they slowly descend at this askew angle uh, to the go-fast. And as it gets closer and closer, the wash from its rotors disturbs the, 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 the surface so completely that the vessel swamps and is immediately submerged. Now this is extremely dangerous for the crew of the go-fast. If they stay above decks, they're going to get washed off into the turbulent water where they're likely to drown. And if they go below decks, they're going to be underwater where they will definitely drown. So, luckily for us, the smugglers, they uh, pack their kilos in such a way that they're waterproof and thus buoyant because you can't sell soggy cocaine. Uh, but that was to our benefit. Uh, when we sent in our vessel boarding search and seizure team to, to fish the the bricks of cocaine out of the water, um, it made their job much easier. See, the entire time I participated in the war on drugs, I never saw a single armed enemy. Every belligerent I encountered was unarmed and very clearly just trying to survive. The people driving those go-fasts, they weren't drug lords, they weren't kingpins, they were victims. 
they were probably coerced into doing what they were doing through violence. Uh, and they were definitely risking their lives every day. But on the day we swamped that GoFast, we recovered a record-breaking number of bricks. I remember seeing all the bricks stacked up against the bulkhead. That's the Navy word for wall. Uh, one of the uh, MAs, that's the Navy word for military police, <laughs> uh, they had stacked up this, these bricks of cocaine into a throne, a full-size throne made of cocaine. Later on that day, we all took turns posing for pictures in front of it. You know, we really believed we'd done good, that, that we'd made a positive difference. That's the thing about war. It's the thing. Of all the extremes that humans go to, war is the big one. You know, uh, once things escalate to war, you're no longer fettered by the idea of holding back so as not to escalate things further. Uh, once you're at war, escalation is just, it's just another tactic in your toolbox. That's why we can be so sure that those big warriors who got beat by the first weakling archers came back with some big, powerful bows of their own to retaliate. And then someone else figured out how to counter that tactic, and so on and so forth. But the thing about archery, and the reason why it's so important, uh, not only does it represent the genesis of warfare, uh, but for a long time, the archer was actually the premier unit during warfare. The use of archery in battle came to define the military might of dozens of civilizations. In the East, though they lived nearly seven centuries apart, both Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan led military forces that were legendary for their mounted archers. These archers were special. When they showed up on the battlefield, enemy warriors were stymied. Traditionally, if you saw something on the battlefield that worked, you tried to imitate it. In the service, that's what we call lessons learned, and we put in our after-action reports. But you can't just toss your best archers on the back of a horse and expect them to have the kind of success that the Huns and Mongols had. Their warriors trained their entire lives, from childhood until they died in battle. Uh, to hone the level of athleticism and marksmanship it took to be successful while you're bouncing around shooting arrows from the back of a horse. And then in Middle Ages Europe, we learned that technology can actually uh, improve the skill gap itself. Uh, the European longbow uh, played a significant role in both open combat and siege warfare for centuries. Not to mention, they were the mainstay of siege defense until they were finally replaced, later on, with more powerful weaponry. In both ancient Greece and Egypt, chariot archers were the dominant military unit for centuries. Eventually archery would disappear from the battlefield altogether. Today, you won't find the Russian or Ukrainian troops shooting at each other with bows and arrows, uh, despite what the action movies might tell you. Uh, it's worth mentioning most military survival guides do include a passage on how to craft a bow and arrows, uh, but that's just to hunt small game in case you're in survival mode. Uh, the reason why bows and arrows went away in war is very, very simple. Guns. Though firearms did appear in warfare as early as the 11th and 12th centuries, their mass proliferation, uh, the mass proliferation of gunpowder rifles, that is, uh, between the beginning and the end of the 19th century, that would ultimately put an end to the era of sticks and stones and bows and arrows for good. It's impossible to know exactly what the archers depicted in those Valencian cave paintings were fighting about. But one thing is certain. Nobody won on that day. The legacy of that conflict lives on. It lives on in the Ukraine war. It lives on in the more than 30 other ongoing wars around the world today. It is a legacy of loss. It is a legacy of tragedy. And worst of all, it is a legacy of stupidity. Despite our scientific and technological advancements, 
Our disgusting penchant for war continues to eat away at the core of our society and civilization. Like a smoker with emphysema who won't stop smoking to save their own life. But the main difference is that the majority of people affected by war never have a choice in the matter. And that's unlikely to change. As long as there are warmongers in positions of power and leadership, then those who wish to wage peace must be prepared to fight for it. I hope you'll join us next episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about boot camp and the military onboarding experience. Until then, I wish you fair winds and following seas. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, it is important to seek qualified assistance. In the U.S., call 911 if you need police, fire, or emergency medical assistance. Call 988 if you need to speak to a trained crisis counselor who can help with mental health-related distress. You can also text 988 to reach a mental health crisis specialist via SMS. If you are a veteran or are concerned about one, call 988, then press 1 to speak with a responder qualified to support veterans. You can also text 838-255 to reach the Veterans Crisis Line. If you have access to the web, visit www.ptsd.va.gov for the U.S. Veterans Administration's online resources related to PTSD.